0: Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to Him, that they might be warned. Thank you for joining us again. Today we continue our discussion with Pastor Gary Durham on Jesus' calendar as he described it to his disciples, what we can see that has happened and what is yet to happen. So we're once again, we're here and we're talking to uh, Dr. Gary Durham, uh, Senior Pastor of Palm City New Hope Church. And... Welcome, Pastor Durham. Good to be here again with you, J.D. So, last time we were talking about the Olivet Discourse and walking through Matthew, and we had got to about maybe the midway a little bit farther in uh, chapter 14, and we talked about how the pace of change and events are going to increase, as well as the veracity of the events that we're going to be seeing. So, we also talked a little bit about how the entirety of the world will hear the gospel of the word, mm-hmm. and how that is a lot more likely and, and f- happening faster today because of technology and language barriers that have broken down. Um, do we need to touch any more on that a little bit?
1: I think it might be just good just to say that, you know, we talked about how most of the world speaks English, or a lot of the world does, not everyone obviously, but it is becoming the universal language like the Koine Greek was in the time of Christ and the apostles, which allowed them to evangelize most of the civilized world of that day. Uh, And we're seeing this now uh, around the globe because we have that, and then we have the technology to reach people in remote places through radio, internet, and all of those things. So yes, this preaching of the gospel to every ethnos, every ethnic group, is, is moving quickly. Some have tried to tie it to the translation of the Bible into every person's language. That's really not the point. They, people can hear the gospel and still not have that. And and they can also read an English Bible if they know how, if they know English, even if it's not their native language. So uh, we're getting very close. And then that's the one place where Jesus says, at the end of verse 14 in Matthew 24, as we're following that part of the Olivet Discourse, that, then the time set aside for the end will come. Until then, he keeps saying, no, it's not the end yet. Don't, don't worry about it. It's just the birth pains. Uh, you know, this is the beginning. Uh, and he says, you know, don't jump to conclusions is what he's saying. But then he says, after all these things we've been talking about through verses 9 through 14 and on further down, uh, and we kind of been walking through and seeing how we're in that, you know, But uh, then he points out, no, when this is finally done, when you get that accomplished, then the time set aside for the end will come, which which points to, of course, what we often refer to as the 70th week of Daniel. And we know that that's from Daniel 9 because the very next verse, verse 15, he's going to start talking about the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. And that puts us immediately into a place where we can nail down a timeline right there, at least sequentially. We don't know a date on the calendar, but we know sequentially. Yeah.
0: Well, great. So this venue that we're talking on right now is one of those things that's going to help spread the gospel across the entire world. Uh, Yes. Podcast, radio, internet, television. There's so much more technology today and so many venues for people that are believers to get the word out. Mm-hmm. And even podcasts like this typically get translated into multiple languages around the world. Yes, so I I can see where this idea of the word being spread and the far corners being reached is coming closer. The world's getting smaller and smaller from a technological mm-hmm. and a, a verbalization standpoint.
1: Yeah, and and this is significant, JD, simply because Jesus talks about the fact that his coming is a signs preceded coming. And what that means is there are going to be signs. He tells us what those are, we're to look for them. And he says, in effect, when all these things begin to happen together, is really the meaning of what he's saying. Not when you have one here and then one there. They've been happening for thousands of years. But when they all begin to crescendo together, then he says, look up for your redemption draws near. That's, uh, of course, Luke's. That's in Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. And the whole point of that is that the, his coming is a science preceding coming. Now, we often hear the term by some theories about end time that the coming of Christ is imminent. And the word imminent, of course, means could happen at any moment. It's just immediate. It's just ready to, to, to happen, at, you know, the next second or it could happen. And I remember growing up hearing that, the, you know, the rapture of the church, the return of Christ is imminent. It could happen this moment. And uh, once I really begin to study the scriptures exegetically and pull this apart, I, I would say to people, no, it can't happen right now. And they'd say, what do you mean it can't happen? God can do anything. i say, no, God can't break his own word because he will not break his own word. And uh, Jesus said it's going to happen when these signs have been fulfilled. It's a signs preceding coming, not an imminent coming. So when those signs are fulfilled, then we can look up. Uh, until then, we're said to stay at our post. We're to be aware. We're to watch. We are to be about uh, the master's business.
0: Very good. So we've we've come to the point where we we've, we've decided that we can say that we're probably approaching the point where we've reached the far corners of the planet mm-hmm. with the with Jesus's message. And um, so I guess the next question would be, what's the next thing that we look for in these in these signs?
1: Yeah, we touched on this just a little bit at the end last in our last. Uh, uh, Session, And uh, what we were talking about was that what we're going to be looking for and the world is pushing for right now is a is a global uh, some kind of global government and economic system. Uh, the Bible talks about this, especially in Revelation. Uh, it talks about how there is going to rise a nation, uh, a beast, that final beast of Daniel seven, uh, the beast we see in Revelations 13, Uh, these are, this is going to be a beast that tramples the whole earth. We're told now, a lot of people, and we'll maybe get a chance to go into Daniel later, but uh, you know, as far as an actual walk through Daniel or something. But the point is, is that a lot of people just see Daniel seven, where you have the four beasts, you know, the lion with the wings that are torn off and it's given the heart of a man and stands up on its feet. And then, you know, you have the bear with the three ribs in its mouth and, you know, and it's, uh, it's told to get up and eat your fill of flesh. And then you have the leopard with the four wings and four heads. And then you finally have this beast that's different from all the other beasts. Because the beasts symbolize nations. Uh, God calls human nations beastly. <laughs> and so that final beast says it tramples down the whole earth. Well, a lot of people see Daniel 7 as just a rehearsal a kind of another overview of what is described in Daniel 2 with the statue, Babylon, Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold, you know, the Media Persian Empire that followed, uh, the Greek Empire and with Alexander the Great and so on. And then you have, of course, the the Iron Empire with, uh, you know, the, that will ultimately be divided into two, which it did, the Western Empire, the Eastern Empire, and then ultimately disintegrate into the European states that are like, in the toes of the feet, which are like iron and clay mixed together, which doesn't hold together very well. And of course, that's just history now for us, but it was all predicted. But in actuality, those two chapters don't perfectly overlay. Uh, You can see that the previous in the second chapter is reflected in the seventh chapter, but there are too many things that just do not fit the ancient interpretation. We don't have time to go into that right now because we need to do that as we go through Daniel. But the point is, is that, there is a modern interpretation of those beasts, and that's important for us to understand. And what Daniel tells us in Daniel 9 is that there is going to be uh, this 70th week of Daniel, and it, and maybe we should go back and talk about Daniel 9 if you'd like to, J.D., so make sure that people understand what we're talking about when we talk about that.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be great because I've had several people talk to me in the past about what some of these beasts represent from a nation's standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to get your take on that.
1: Well, that'll take us from the Oliver Discourse. If we go there now, but we can do that because I think it would really—it's really interesting. It's extremely. If you want to, if you want to hit uh, Chapter Seven, that that will that will. Of course, we'd have to correlate some also with Revelations 13 to do that. But
0: I think we can do that another time. I guess. Okay. But I, it is something I'd love to get into sometime because yeah. there's a lot of uh, imagery that yes. uh, is put in there that people like to apply to things that we see in our world today mm-hmm. and and quite honestly the arguments are, are pretty good if you, if you think about the way the imagery of different nations yes
1: out. yes and uh, yeah and the modern interpretation fits almost i mean it's it's perfect as far as we can see and we just don't know all of the implications of the characteristics described of that final beast which tramples down the whole earth and has of course this horn on it that speaks boastfully and and uh and challenges you know, even the, the stars of the heavens, you know, uh referring to the angels of God, even, you know, and uh and the people of God. And it says he and he tramples down the people of God and conquers him for a period of time until God comes to uh you know, rule in favor of the saints. So
0: Well, I look forward to that discussion. But yeah. back to where we're at in our all of it this course discussion. So we're we're talking about the creation of a one world government mm-hmm. and one world religion ultimately. Um, and i see a lot of things happen in the world today we have a lot of very uh, rich people billionaires mm-hmm. that are really kind of pushing for a consolidation of power whether it be through the united nations or it be through some other government uh, governmental body mm-hmm. worldwide uh, i see people like bill gates that want to cloud out the sun right and and this is a worldwide decision this isn't a decision for a nation this isn't a a decision that is made by a single government or people they're they're trying to make decisions on a global basis yeah and when i hear them talk about putting this major network of satellites above our planet so they can you know track every movement of every vehicle every person um and to uh, pinpoint what's going on at, on the planet at any given time through GPS and global domination. This is no longer, there. there is no autonomy of nation, there is no autonomy of people anymore. Mm-hmm. They're now a global people. And this looks like the goal that they're headed to now. And they're pushing their agenda very, very hard on every nation. It seems, though, that there are a few nations that are resistant. Mm-hmm. And, and i believe that our nation has been one of those that they have got to do something about our resistance before they can succeed yeah and, uh, and i think that we saw in the previous four years they were very disappointed because they thought they had a moment going into that and right they got interrupted yeah and now that we have a new um, administration it seems like they're just going faster than ever dreamed of they're trying to, to do double time yeah. so nobody can interrupt them again
1: yeah, they're trying to recover what they feel they've lost. Now, you know, we may or may not agree that God's going to allow globalism to happen anytime soon. Mm-hmm. But we there can be no mistake if you're paying attention that there is a huge contingent that is pushing for globalism to happen and to happen soon. And there's a lot of billionaires and a lot of corporations and even a lot of politicians who are absolutely willing to do almost anything to make that agenda happen. And, uh, I, and, you know, and we're not going to go into politics, but we, it right. seems like there's been a lot of corruption going on to make that happen and to stop what they saw as an interruption to that, especially in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes, we're looking forward to a globalism. And one of the reasons we understand this is the correlation of Daniel 9 uh, and Daniel 7, also with Revelations 13, also with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And when you put all that together and, and uh, properly, you come to understand that, yes, there's going to be this uh, this seven-year treaty to try globalism. It's kind of like, okay, we'll put a little uh, timeline on this and see if it's working. And if it doesn't work, we can always reset, you know, kind of thing. But that's going to suck everybody into it. And uh, the Bible says it will be a seven-year treaty. And in Daniel 9, Daniel was praying about the end of the 70 years of uh, exile. And he had been reading in the prophet Jeremiah that it was only going to be for 70 years and God was going to bring a remnant back to the land. Daniel is a very powerful man. He's setting uh, as the prime minister of the media Persian empire at this time. Uh, he's, uh, we forget that the Daniel in the lion's den story where he is one of three who are over 120 satraps each Uh, that he was, that Dyrus was planning to put him over the whole kingdom. And the others tried to thwart that and got Daniel thrown in the lion's den by their little scheme. It didn't work because God shut the mouth of the lion, but they all ended up in the lion's den. And Daniel did get his promotion. So he ended up extremely powerful. And he was setting in a position likely, not only did, but the first thing he did was pray. The whole, the whole first part of Daniel 9 is him in this incredible he praise on behalf of the nation and confessing the sins of the nation and asking God to fulfill his promise to bring them back from captivity. And God answers him and sends Gabriel to him to say, yeah, that's going to happen, but I want you to understand these 70 years of captivity, I'm using them as a template to lay over the whole of time. And I want you to understand I'm going to give you a calendar and we'll tell you how that calendar breaks down. And that's where in Daniel 9, we get this, what we call the 70 weeks or 77s. Actually, the better translation would be 70 heptads, heptad meaning a seven uh, of Daniel. And uh, we learn through history and the fulfillment of the first part of the calendar that each of those weeks is seven years. So each day in a week is, is a year. And it's a prophetic year, uh, 360 day year, which is what all prophecy is based on from the old calendars. It's not a solar year. It's a lunar kind of thing. And you have to convert it if you're trying to convert to uh, solar calendars. And you can do this. But Daniel, for example, with that calendar, you could actually predict by converting to solar from the time of the declaration, uh, for example, to rebuild Jerusalem, which he says will take place from that, that starts the clock ticking on these seventies. And then you can figure out the exactly when he says the Messiah is going to come. And then after the, uh, this 69th week, he's going to be cut off. You can actually figure that out. And when you do, you come out to Nisan the ninth, AD 33, when Jesus rode through the gates of Jerusalem and was declared King, setting on uh, the, the coat of a donkey uh, as prophesied by the other prophets. And the point of all that is that that calendar came true on that day. In fact, I've often said to my Jewish friends who are not followers of Messiah, I say to them, if Jesus was not the Messiah on that day, because all the Jewish leaders had they been paying attention, should have been at the gates of Jerusalem waiting for the Messiah, because he's predicted on that day. Daniel said, he's going to come. And uh, they weren't there for that reason. And, uh, but if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then there's never going to be one because he can't come late and certainly not 2000 years late. (laughs) But uh, a lot of people don't understand, you know, that that calendar was so specific that he arrives literally on the day. And then, of course, the rest of the calendar, which we need to probably talk about out of Daniel 9, which helps us understand this abomination of desolation.
0: Sounds great. So where, where do we start here in Daniel 9 or?
1: Well, we would go to the ninth chapter, and I think the best place to start is just where Gabriel comes to Daniel and starts talking about these 77s or 70 weeks. Uh, you can talk about 70 heptads. It doesn't matter. They all mean the same. Uh, it'd actually be in Daniel 9, verse 24 is where you'd start. And it says, uh, and, and I'll read this from uh, kind of uh, one of the versions here, but uh, any of them read pretty much the same. He, uh, Gabriel is speaking here and he says, he's talking to Daniel, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. And then there are six things he mentioned that are going to be f- completed in this period of time to finish transgressions. And that's a wonderful thought. If we stop talk about that, in other words, all transgression will come to an end uh, when this is all done uh, to put an end to sin. Wow. Uh, won't see that one fulfilled. Uh <laughs> To atone for wickedness, that's obviously to be done. To bring in uh, everlasting righteousness. In other words, it's never going to go back the other way. Uh, To seal up visions and prophecies. In other words, to fulfill them and to make them all come to pass so we don't need them anymore. And finally, to anoint the most holy. And some uh, think that means to anoint the most holy place in the final temple or to anoint the Messiah, because Messiah means to anoint uh, the anointed one. And so many believe that's referring to Jesus being anointed as the eternal king. Um, And then he says this, no one understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Notice that's the key. Until the anointed one, which is of course Messiah, Mm -hmm. the ruler comes, there will be, and then he gives two subdivisions there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, which of course comes up to 70, 69 sevens. Hmm. So you have seven sevens, and he says it's going to start with this decree. That's where the clock starts ticking. Now there were several decrees for the Jews to return, uh, to rebuild the temple and so on. But the one which actually was acted on, which went out by Artaxerxes in 444 BC is the one that is being referred to here. And that's where we actually have uh, a Nehemiah coming back and the city is rebuilt in a matter of 50 days. Uh, the walls are restored and then eventually they will later get the temple redone. But it talks about the city being rebuilt and it tells us how it's going to be rebuilt because he starts talking about this, talking about that so 7 and 7, it says the, uh, he says it will be rebuilt um, in times, uh, it will be built, Rebuilt with uh, streets and a trench, and, uh, uh, and but in times of trouble. And now, if you all have to do is read Nehemiah, <laughs> and you'll find out that's exactly how it was. They had to build the walls with a sword in one hand, or a spear in one hand, and a tool in the other, because there was so much trouble going on. And yet, it was rebuilt with streets and a trench, and uh, exactly as they said. And then, then he says, uh, uh, but... Uh, talking about, uh, but he says, after the 62 sevens, So he goes from the seven sevens to the 62 sevens, which start immediately after the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Uh, he says, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. In other words, he will be put to death and will seem to have accomplished nothing would be the better translation, uh, but at least from a Jewish perspective, where they want him to set up this eternal kingdom and make Israel the leading nation. Uh, now, if you look at those first two, uh the we look at the, the decree in 444 BC to rebuild Jerusalem, and if you look at the calendar, uh, you'll discover that in 395 BC. And remember, you count down backwards from in the BC, or uh, the uh, uh, BCE, as they like to say today. <laughs> but the point is, is that it took exactly 49 years to rebuild and finish that rebuilding of Jerusalem and to get it to the state described here. And as a result, it was easy for people like, for example, the Magi in Jesus' day, who were probably from Babylonia, um, who were of the cast of Daniel. Daniel was the greatest Magi that ever lived. They were probably followers of Daniel. Uh, They knew his book. They knew his prophecies. They knew his calendar. This is why the star meant so much to them. They knew about there's a star going to arise in Jacob, but there've been other stars. Uh, and yes, they knew the old astrology, which was valid and had not been corrupted into what we now think of as astrology. Uh, but that's another story, the gospel in the stars by guys like Dr. Seiss and, uh, and, uh, Bullinger. But, uh, you know, very powerful study as you go back into ancient history and discover what they really meant and how the gospel was literally laid out in the stars. But they understood that, but they also understood Daniel's calendar. So they looked at that and said, oh, it took 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. Wow, now we got the key. Now we know that the seven sevens are all a year of uh, every day of that. And so they were able to start calculating forward. If Messiah is going to be put to death, he's got to at least become a man. He's got to probably reach what the Jews would consider maturity. So he's going to be somewhere around thirty years of age at least at the beginning of his mission. So uh, they just start calculating, and by the time they get to about four B.C. or so, or around in that area, they're going, "It's got to be quick. There's only thirty some years left. You know, he's got to come soon." And when the star appeared and did appear in the right constellations at the right time, according to the ancient astrology, uh, they knowing Daniel's calendar said, this has to be it. And so that's why they were willing to take probably about a nine to 10 month journey uh, to find Christ. They were not at the nativity scene of the night of Christ's birth. They did not arrive to about nine or 10 months later. Uh, Jesus was probably born in the month of Nisan in the spring. They arrive, according to tradition, on December 25th, which is why we celebrate Christmas now. It was the day of gift-giving because they came bringing gifts to the Christ child who was a toddler and now in a house, <laughs> it says. They came to the house where Mary and, uh, and Jesus were, and they bowed down and worshipped a the toddler. They must have had great insight. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the first d- two divisions of, the, of Daniel's prophecy, and it says that those 69 weeks will end, when the Messiah is cut off and put to death. And it says after the 69 weeks, he'll be cut off. Jesus was cut off exactly five days after the 69 week calendar ended. And then it says, there's going to be a period of time of wars and desolations that have been decreed until the time of the end. And then it begins to talk about that final seven, that 70th seven. And that's what we talk about as the 70th week of Daniel. And that hasn't happened yet. And the clock doesn't start ticking again. We don't know how long this time of desolations and war is. But it is interesting. In AD 70, when uh, Jesus had predicted the destruction of Jerusalem, we'll see that that's also predicted in Luke 21. That's uh, what Jesus is is recorded there, where in Matthew 24, what he records is that end time. We can show that very clearly. So they're not exactly the same event. But the point is, is that Jesus predicts that uh, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's interesting that from the destruction of Jerusalem, if you do a chart on wars and rumors of wars and mm-hmm. can increasing conflicts in the world, it do becomes an exponential curve that just continues to rise and rise and rise all the way to our day. 20th century has been the bloodiest century in all of world history. We have killed more people in the 20th century by war and by, famine and by just everything that has ever been killed and slaughtered in all the world. We lived through the bloodiest century, many of us, and didn't take note of it. Uh, and atheistic communism killed the hundreds of millions of people uh, for their faith and for political reasons. Um, they, uh, they make what we think of as the barbarian ages of the, you know, or the Middle Ages and the ancient times look pretty calm by comparison. So that's kind of how the the seventh week of Daniel and then Daniel talks about how there's going to be this prince who will come and that in the middle of that seven, that week, that last week, after he's made a treaty, a covenant with many means many nations, not just with Israel, he's going to make a covenant with many that. And you can see it here in this passage. Then it says that he's going to cause an abomination that causes desolation on one of the wings of the temple. And that's where we can go to Second Thessalonians. And Paul says, yeah, uh, there were some people thinking, oh, the, the day of the Lord's already come. And so there were some false prophets telling them that. And they missed it. And, you know, or else it really didn't make much difference is what they were trying to tell them. But uh, Paul said, no, 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 no. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says that day cannot happen until the rebellion occurs and the man of the lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And then he goes on to explain what that reveal, the word apokalupto in the Greek there means to unmask until the Antichrist is unmasked, this lawless one. And he talks about Christ will not come. He can't come until that happens. Why? Paul's saying the same thing I said earlier. It's a signs preceding coming, and he won't come until those signs are fulfilled. And that's one of the signs that has to be fulfilled. So it's certainly not, the rapture doesn't happen before that. So, uh, and his coming doesn't happen before that. And then, it's, then Paul says that he, what unmask him is that he will set himself up in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And that's where we are here in this it Discourse right now at verse 15 when Jesus says, so when you, you the church, and he's talking to the seed of the church and the apostles, when you see the abomination of desolation, the one spoken of by the prophet Daniel, and then I I love the little fact that Matthew adds this little editorial note. Uh, Jesus didn't say this, but he said, let the reader understand. And he said that, and I think we mentioned last time, because it's so important because Mm -hmm. there had been already some abominations of desolation. There was one during the Babylonian uh, period when they destroyed Solomon's temple. There was one during the time of the Maccabees when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple and walked into the Holy of Holies saying, where's this Jewish God? You know, and, uh, and the Romans would do it again in AD 70. And uh, Jesus wanted to make sure that people didn't think, oh, that's it. No, he says, no, the one spoken of by Daniel. And that won't happen until this worldwide global system has been installed with a seven-year treaty with many nations.
0: So that kind of leads us to believe that there's a couple things that we can count on seeing that we haven't seen yet. One, there will be some form of one-world government, at least for a limited time. Mm -hmm. And two, the rebuilding of the temple.
1: Yes, Ooh, boy! And is that another subject we could <laughs> spend a whole broadcast on? Uh, I'm—I've made friends many years ago uh, with. Uh, oh man, I'm having a brain freeze here. Uh, um, anyway, he—he's with the Base Institute, uh, but uh, he's the one who really kind of dis- just did a lot of the discoveries on the True Mount Sanai, and. Uh. uh Anyway, he is doing a lot of work now with the discovery of the true site of the temple, uh, where the Gihon Spring is coming up, mm-hmm. where they know from Josephus' writings and others that it came up into in the center of the temple courts. The Gihon Spring is down in the city of David, not up there on the Shef, Sharif Shoram, which is literally, now we know, the Antonio Fortress where 10,000 yeah. Romans lived. No other place to put them in Jerusalem, by the way. And that's all. That's exactly the size of what they made their Roman encampments about 35 acres up there, a rectangle. And uh, Josephus says there was 10,000 people up there, 6,000 soldiers and 4,000 support staff for the Romans. They had their own little city up there. And the Jews wouldn't let them use the water from the Gihon Spring, which is the only source of water in all of Jerusalem, as far as live water. And you had to have live water to do temple sacrifices. So they had it, it was literally coming up inside the temple, and they used it for their sacrifice. They couldn't use cistern water. The Romans built an aqueduct all the way up to the top of what people now call the Temple Mount, and they used that for their water, but that water was not acceptable for sacrifices. You had to have living, running water, live water, as they would they would refer to it, living water. And uh, they wouldn't let the Romans touch it because it was sacred water. <laughs> so the water, Romans had to get their own water, and that was that was interesting.
0: Yeah, and there's actually quite a bit of discussion about that. That was one of the things that they were quite proud of is their infrastructure yeah, and all the aqueducts and the streets and stuff that they right. put in. And a, honestly, a lot of the streets were put in so they could build the aqueducts and move equipment mm-hmm. and people and horses and stones just to get water moved from one place to another. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of people, I don't think, study a lot is, as you said, they didn't have running water up there, so they had to move water to that site. So right. I think there is a large movement in the world right now for people to go back and look at this potential discovery of the original city of David, that the yeah. mountain was completely dug down and crushed, and rocks moved out and filled up a valley with it, and right. rose the valley floor so many feet. But now they have found what appears to be the substructure, yes, far right. underground, yes, of the of, real temple of these these foothold footings and and mm-hmm. whatnot for the temple originally. Yeah, and even I saw some videos on where they have shown where the uh, animals will be brought in, and sacrifice, and you can see yeah. where the rings were actually in the wall and the mm-hmm. wear marks and all these things. Um, the sacrifice floor, basically.
1: And one of the guys that's led this, I was trying to think, my my brain just unfrozen on Bob, Robert Canuck, but uh, Bob Canuck. And Bob and I got uh, uh, acquainted years ago right after he came back from his sneaky little trip into Saudi Arabia to make... Uh, you know, videos of you know, uh, with his friend Jerry uh, uh, of the true Mount Sinai. And of course, that was just blew the lid off of things. And there's been others who have done work on that. And of course, it's all there. And we now know that's exactly where the Bible says it was. It's in Arabia, not in the Sinai Peninsula. But the point is, is that he's done a lot of work and he, he, he now he's a PhD in archeology, span a former detective, and he uses his detective skills. And he's really doing a lot of work and kind of leading the charge on this written, a really good book just called Temple. You should go look for it. If Mm -hmm. you haven't, if our listeners haven't heard it, go go get it. You can get it online. It's just called Temple by Robert Canute. And uh, there they, he, they give the evidence. And the only thing holding up now, the building of the temple is for the old traditionalist Jews, uh, Jewish rabbis to cave in and realize the evidence all over here, but they don't want to admit it because they'd have to admit that all these years they've been praying and worshiping at a pagan at a pagan encampment. (laughs) And that's hard to admit. Uh, Josephus says that there was nothing left of the Temple Mount, that they took not only the Temple down, they took the mound down and shoved all the debris into the Kidron Valley and literally raised the Kidron Valley several Mm -hmm. feet because they did not want the Jews to ever be able to remember that there was a Temple there. And that's exactly how effective it was. But we have found the underground substructures of it. And uh, so... What that says to us is also very exciting about the signs of the time. There is going to be another temple. We don't know exactly when, but right now if the old rabbis finally look at the evidence, and say, okay, this is where it really was. This is part of the scriptures as it is down in the city of David, not up there on that, uh, um, what we call the temple mound. But the, uh, if they're willing to do that, there's nothing standing in the way of them building the temple, uh, And um, that would immediately tell us, wow, we're going to be pretty close.
0: Yeah. And I've heard in the last few months, there's actually movement in that direction and that there's Mm -hmm. a potential, um, some treaties actually being uh, put together to move that forward. Yeah. And along with that, that I've heard that they have designed, have a temple design and, and all the materials set up to where it could be actually assembled very quickly
1: yes uh in fact uh i've actually spoken with some people in israel that years ago were claiming they had most of the temple parts built it's been fabricated and designed so that it will go together i guess a simple way to say it like a tinker tory set it Mm -hmm. will literally go together uh, kind of with very little sound of tools you know kind of thing like the original solomon's temple and that all these parts are stored underground. And so, now I can't validate that. I'm not sure that that's so, but that's what I was told. Uh, Gresham Solomon seems to indicate that that he won't say for sure that that's true, but he's in a position to know. And if, uh, but he seemed to kind of indicate, mm, yeah, that might be. You know, he, he wouldn't say no to it uh, when he was confronted about it. Uh, and uh, and the Temple Institute has certainly prepared all of the the everything we needed with all the vesters and utensils and the gold things for the temple sacrifice beginning again. They have the red heifer. Now they can have the ashes of the red heifer so they can consecrate everything. Everything's really kind of in place that in alone, that just by itself should make us go, whoa. We're really, really close. Anytime God says go, it, it could happen.
0: Right. So from from the temple standpoint, we can see that we're probably at what we'd call an imminent moment. Could mm-hmm. happen pretty much any time. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, we were talking about this seven-year treaty or a one-world, let's call a one-world government for at least a temporary period, and I'm wondering, we have a global pandemic mm-hmm. that's going on, and it looks like, from all standards, that there's no real controls over what's going on with it. Like, so we haven't controlled it, contained it in any country that uh, the the media at least tells us about. So. I'm wondering if it's, there could be something, and this could be it, it could be something else like this, that they use in order to get a global treaty to try to curtail, contain something like this, that would bring in or usher in this seven-year treaty or period where every nation works as a single voice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I wonder if that would fit into this timeline and, and how this would maybe usher in some of these other things as well.
1: Well, it would fit into a couple of things we know that if you want to control people, one of the most powerful means of doing that is through fear. Mm-hmm. And of course, the what I, uh, what some people, even uh, some of the the greatest uh, virologists and medical minds in our country who have been basically shut up have said this is a kind of scam, Demi, because it's it really isn't very deadly. You know, ninety nine point Nine, eight percent of all people who get it survive it just fine. Uh, So it has, you know, has a point zero two percent actual death rate across the board. Uh, There are places in the world that aren't having much issue with it. And they're the ones that haven't had all the Western shutdowns and masks and all stuff in in sub-Saharan Africa. They have less than one percent of our mortality rate. And there, there's no social distancing, there's no mask, there's no nothing. They just treat it like any flu they've had every year, and uh, most people survive it just fine. It's not doesn't seem to be nearly as deadly as SARS was or any of the others. And we weren't running around with masks on then. But uh, it's interesting. But they have used this and turned it into a pandemic, and it, it and people are absolutely paralyzed by fear, and we're trying to control this thing. And as a result, it gives people power when people are fearful then the government steps in and says oh we'll take care of this for you and suddenly they become more totalitarian and they tell us what we can and can't do and suddenly you know they're telling us you can't get together with your family and you can't do this and you can't do that and in and, and in most cases government never once it takes over the control of some area of your life it never releases that and so you can see that this can be used to begin to push the nation together and say we need a a global system of controlling these things. And if everybody's afraid, they're all going to go, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, we need this.
0: Yeah. And I see a lot of people, even here locally in our own area, I see people that are demanding the government step in and force people to wear masks, (laughs) force people to do vaccinations, force people to do things against their will for the greater good. And I can see where that could become a global outcry amongst what we would call the powerful wealthy, militarized nations. Yeah. And once you have those nations acting together, such as the United States, France, China, mm-hmm. Russia, these large nations, if they're all moving together in the same direction, the smaller countries like Central Africa and some of these other nations, it really doesn't matter what they're doing because they don't have the power and influence to make things happen anyhow. Exactly,
1: They're just going to be sucked into the wake of all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it is true that we, we have a real real issue here because uh, there is going to be more of this totalitarian kind of thing where you, for the greater good, that's always the cry. Mm-hmm. You've got to do this. And then suddenly you can't control what people inject into your own body. You can't you say yes or no, it's required or else you're paralyzed and can't do anything. You know, they won't allow you to travel. They won't allow you to do anything. And of course that really becomes uh, like a police state. Uh, I mean, it, it really probably wasn't quite that bad most of the time in, in your Marxist countries where it was quite severe. But, I mean, at least you could... <laughs> when somebody telling you you had to do this and had to do that in the sense of, uh, you know, injecting something into your body and all mm-hmm. the population had to do it and so on and so forth. But we're up against something where people are actually crying for this, and it's because of fear. Right. Yeah, it's and fear is a very powerful thing. And what you must understand, anytime you see abnormal, uh, improper fear. Always ask yourself, what are people believing they shouldn't be believing? Because a lie is always behind a fear of that kind. There are proper fears, but there are improper fears. And these. this is an improper fear, it's a form of paranoia. And you should ask yourself, what are they believing? What, who's lied to them? What have they been told that they shouldn't have been told?
0: Right, and even if this isn't the thing that catalysts into this this treaty, I see this as a test run for how to use fear. Mm-hmm. to manipulate people to do this. Yes. And, and I believe that they've been very effective because they've taken a good segment of the population and turned them into this, and using cancel culture, yes. turned them into their own agents to mm-hmm. force more fear down people and at the same time to report on at least, if not, and help identify those that would not comply. Yeah, Well,
1: cultural Marxism, which is rampant now in our country, as well as, uh, you know, all over the globe in many places, Uh, cultural Marxism, you know, people in our country say, well, you know, we're never going to be a Marxist country because, you know, uh, economic Marxism has failed all over the world. Well, yes, it has. I mean, you don't have to be very bright to look around and say, you know, every place they tried it, it just went belly up, you know. And so people say, well, they're never going to bring it here because nobody else, but they're not trying to bring that here first. That'll be the consequence what -hmm. they're trying to bring is cultural marxism and that's the application of marxist theory to culture not to economy and when they bring that then that will pull in the uh the economic marxism but they learned a hard lesson with the soviet union and these other countries that you really can't do it that way until you change the culture so what they're doing is dividing the culture up into oppressed and oppressor. And then they're pitting them against each other. And And now the cultural Marxists that, which have been educating our young people for the last 60 years in the universities. And that's why we wonder now why the younger generation thinks so different than everybody else. Well, they've never known anything else. If we'd been educated like them, we'd think just like them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been lied to. They, their history has been edited and rewritten and miswritten. Uh, they, you know, uh, they are, they don't know the history of the world as many of us grew up learning it, world history, American history, and so on. Those things are just basically with most of the facts have been removed from them. And they've been told that, you know, America's bad, America's evil. Uh, and then, you know, and they're not told about, you know, the evils of the atheist states and, and the slaughter of hundreds of millions of people. Um, you know, they're just not, and that isn't rehearsed, even though they could know those facts are obviously out there but, the, but the, it's never focused on. but what they are told is, is there is oppression and you need to work for social justice. Well, we all want social justice. But the problem is is that cultural Marxism doesn't bring social justice. It cries social justice to get the, and tries to find an oppressor group or create one through and they can create these really uh, what we call uh, virtual oppressed groups by using intersectionality. you know, if you are a black woman, who is also a gay or a lesbian, now you are really oppressed because you've got three levels or layers of, of oppression. And now you have more right to speak out and to rage out than anybody else because you're the oppressed one. And so that gives you a right to speak. And if you, you know, if you're a white uh, middle class or upper upper middle class male, you have no right to say anything because you're an oppressor, whether you have, you might've worked tirelessly to help the oppressed and the poor all your life, but no, because you, it's all, class-oriented, and that's what Marxism is. A class is said to be bad. It doesn't matter what the individual is, which is totally anti-Christian. And mm-hmm. we're, it's being dragged into the church today, and and we're judging people not on personal responsibility and their own personal sins. We're judging people by classes, uh, and, and we're laying, you're guilty because you're this, and you're guilty because you're that, and you are entitled because you're this. And we this is this is lunacy, but the point is, this is how you create irrationality, and then you stampede the culture into literally uh, creating its own demise. And uh, this is what's going on in America right now, and it's going on worldwide.
0: Yeah, I see it uh, somewhat parallel in India's caste system, mm-hmm. and as well as the social good point system yes. mm-hmm. in in China. Yeah, uh, China has created a social point system that. If you don't align with certain ideals or beliefs, then you lose points. Yeah. And you lose enough points, you can't even travel within their nation. Yeah. I mean, you lose privileges and rights. Yeah. And we know from India, you can't marry outside your caste. Yeah. And I think that these two two things are merging together in America, where we're going to create a caste system based upon points that are basically generated because of your situation of birth.
1: Yeah. And it, it's all based on this idea of justice. But the point is, is that the techniques of cultural Marxism doesn't create justice. It creates uh, another oppressor group. And what happens is the people stirring up the oppressed, as they call them, and in making them angry. So they'll throw bricks and burn down businesses, which is very unjust, by the way. Though many of those people are very innocent and they're burning their businesses and everything else. So there's no justice in their so-called social justice. Mm -hmm. But while they're stirring them up, the people who are doing that will end up as the new oppressors, and they will oppress the very people they used. That's exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. The poor and the, you know, the laborer helped, you know, the communists come to power, and then the communists crushed them, starved one million of them to death in one year. Uh, You know, it's just, it's like we don't learn these lessons, but that's exactly what's gonna happen here. And people are going to wake up too late and realize it's too late. I'm already behind bars.
0: Yeah. And we kind of got off on a rabbit hole there a little bit, but I think yeah. that that's relevant to the discussion of people asking for this, this mm-hmm. treaty Yeah, that we will see. I think it's relevant to the fact that they've created a system of ideals and fears in people that if they scare them enough, they will ask to be oppressed right. in, in reality. Yeah. They'll ask for the, the government powers to come in and take control of everything for the greater good, so people will not be suffering. Mm-hmm. And in reality, what they're going to be inviting in is just more suffering.
1: Right. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, they're going to get, be giving a lot of power to the few, and when you give power to the few, it corrupts.
0: Absolutely. You know, yes. Lord Absolute actions. power yeah, corrupts.
1: Actions. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So... And to get us back to the Olivet Discourse, if you look again at verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 24, you can see that the, uh, the abomination desolation is going to happen three and a half or 42 months into the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so we know exactly where we're at there, at least in the sequence of time. So that means verses 13, 14, all of those nine through 14 in particular are the times leading up to that. And we're seeing all these things happening now all these things. In fact, one of the things in here is that you're going to be hated by all nations because of me. Guess what? In a nation that once called itself a Christian nation, where Christianity was the foundation and you were uh, basically looked up to if you were a moral Christian who believed in God and so on, now you're vilified for that. You're hated for that. God's
0: name is all throughout our founding documents, our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence. It's all there. And yeah. This was God's nation.
1: Yes. Yeah, and we founded everything on the basis of the Declaration of Independence and that, you know, all men are created equal, all people literally are created equal and are endowed by their creator mm-hmm. with inalienable rights, rights that cannot be taken away because they're given by God and no one has the authority to remove them. And uh, and that's why if they were saying to King George, you're trying to remove our rights and you don't have the right, you're not God. And so that's where we started. And and that's all been removed in uh,
0: practice. Uh, so and now we've moved to a point where in 2020 we see a Supreme Court justice nominee that's vilified for her faith.
1: Yes, yeah, it's a bad thing to be uh, someone has strong faith, and so we live in uh, in times when we've seen this uh, what the Bible would call reprobation. Reprobation is when things get turned upside down. In other words, you put you put good for evil, you put bitter for sweet. Uh, you know, uh, you put darkness for light and light for darkness. You turn everything upside down. And that's what's happened in our culture. The things we once detested and hated and were ashamed of, we are now celebrating. And uh, Abortion. And, yeah, yeah. And the things that, you know, we once thought were holy and moral and good are mocked and, and, uh, and even vilified. So we have gone, we have now become a reprobate culture. And that's happening around the world, and reprobation is, uh, is a sign of God's judgment begun.
0: So that's an interesting word that you're using. So would you say that people have begun to be turned over to reprobate mind, as the Bible calls out?
1: Yes, very definitely. And this is part of, or at least the beginning of, it may not be the final uh, impact of it, but it's part of the great delusion that Paul talks about in Second Corinthians 2, God will send on people because they refuse to love the truth. So that in itself points to what causes this reprobation. That's what we're seeing. We don't love the truth anymore. So we're trying to somehow vilify the truth and we're trying to exalt the things that we're all enamored with and addicted to uh, because we want to have our own self autonomy and self autonomy is the cry of everything. And that all goes back to the original lie in Eden. You can be God yourself. You don't need to let God tell you what to do. Make up your own mind. Decide for yourself. Enthrone yourself. Do as you please. And and it's and Paul said it they will believe the lie. And the particular article there in the original language is important. It's not a lie. It's the lie, the one Satan told in the garden. It's going to be rampant. And it is
0: rampant. Oh, well, I think that's very obvious if you look at the world today. Yeah. And you look at the things that our society tries to teach people or to propagate through media. It's all about self-control, self-awareness, self-management. Yeah, you know, self. Everything you hear is about self. Yes. And to promote yourself and, and basically be your own God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's, a, that's another sign that the reprobation has come. Because it is a hatred of truth, it is a failure to love truth, and it a and it says, but instead have loved wickedness. Paul says. So we see that today, people love wickedness. They promote it, they celebrate it, they justify it. They actually make it look like it's some kind of thing to be just to celebrate things that we know are actually destructive to people's lives. Uh, you know, but they say, oh no, you got to tolerate it. You got to be, you know, you got to approve of it. Sorry, I can't because I know what it's doing to them you know, and God tells us what it does to them. So as we look at Matthew 24, we see that we're going to go through about 42 months where what we've been talking about in verses 9 through 14 are going to become increasingly um, prevalent and intense. And and, uh, even when that seven-year treaty comes in, J.D., there's going to be a... Maybe uh, you know there's going to be a great delusion going on because things are going to look so good. Uh, you think about you know we get to the point where we know there's going to be a mark at some point. It's going to control the economy so you can't buy or sell unless you are willing to bow down and take it, which will be uh, which will be a form of worship to the Antichrist and the in the system. Uh, we know that,
0: and I see him paving the way for that now with this vaccination yeah. because they're not, they don't want people to be able to go to concerts or be able to travel on an airplane precursor, without yeah. this yeah. vaccination. So they're paving the way for this.
1: Yeah. It's a precursor and it's a conditioning for those kind of things. We don't know how soon it will happen, but we know that these kinds of things begin to move culture and move people and their thinking in that direction to accept things that they formerly would have said, no way, you know, no one's going to do that to us. But, uh, This, But the whole point of this is that we're clearly moving uh, through all these signs and the things that are happening toward a time when this is all going to look so good when it comes in. For example, people say, oh, peace and safety. Paul said when they cry peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So it's going to seem so good and the Antichrist to bring in this system economically and people will say, oh, this is so good. You know, people can't steal your credit cards now. They can't steal your identity because you know, it's attached to your hand or your forehead. And, and, you know, and so you can't, you know, they're not going to cut your head off and go in and try to use your credit card, you know? So, uh, (laughs) well, there might be some who would, but (laughs) the point is, is that it's going to look so good. And technologically, yes, it will be. But the point is, is what it's tied to. The Bible says you submit to that and you're doomed. And uh, we have to understand that these things are coming. We are the first generation in the history of the world that can pull off what the Bible predicted will happen with a total economic control and basically a kind of tracking and control of every person on the planet. We have the technology to do it. It's being put in place. And uh, we're the first generation who can actually make that happen uh, because we can do it so easily now by the advent of the computer and everything else and the satellite.
0: Yeah, I felt like they've been prepping the world for this for quite some time. When you Mm -hmm. think about countries in Africa that where people can't get clean food or clean water and, you know, maybe even a decent shelter from the elements, but the governments of the world give them a free phone. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, how, what do I've these people have to stunned. do yes. with a
0: phone? Yeah, when they can't get clean drinking water and, and not have to worry about things like uh, diphtheria and you know typhoid, but a phone. Yeah, and we all know that the phones are all tracked. Every one of them has the ability to be tracked through GPS and and the the carrier way. So why, it, other than to prep the world for this model, would you be doing that?
1: Yeah. Well, it, yeah, I, I remember how shocked I was when I, I, I've i been to many places in Africa speaking, like Uganda, uh, Tanzania, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, Zimbabwe. And I, I was shocked to see these people running around in rags who had a really nice phone, you know, yeah. <laughs> and they're all on the phone. Everybody's got a phone. And I'm thinking, this is kind of weird. It's it's kind of the same thing when you saw people who didn't have a job living on food stamps that had a, you know, a, a seventy-six inch, you know, uh, plasma TV in their living room, you know, and you're thinking something's not right here, you know, <laughs> and their their priorities are way out of whack, and you know, but uh, and but this is what's happening. We're connecting the world, and it, there's it's more than just convenience that's at stake here.
0: Yeah, I I've seen a lot of discussions about why it would be good to have, and I don't think they're necessarily talking about a chip or a mark just yet, but they're wanting apps maybe on the phones where we have all of our medical records and all your history and mm-hmm. and all these things. So just for faster access, yes. So when you go to a different doctor, they have all the ability to just look at that stuff. It, and it is good. And and it is all a step in that direction where yeah. you just carry with you.
1: Yeah. Well, and technologically, that's a, that's a, that's a good thing. And, and what we must understand is all these things technologically will be good things in one sense of the word. Uh, and it, it, what we're going to see is the misuse of technology. It's going to be the motive behind it. It's going to be the ambition and the purpose of what they're uh, wanting to achieve. And they're going to use the technology to achieve it. And we are going to find ourselves having to say no to things that might be very convenient uh, at some point, because they simply lead us into a kind of slavery to where you, 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 suddenly you can't back out. You're, you know, you're too far down the slope, and there's no stopping you know, if you, at some point. And, and that will happen for, for many Christians, I'm sure, because they're going to wake up too late. It doesn't mean they're not going to make it to heaven, but it does mean they're going to pay a big price, maybe because they're just not paying attention.
0: Yeah, they'll, they'll say, well, this isn't really the mark. This is the... You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it, it, it's a soft battle, right? Yeah.
1: Well, if they take the mark, of course, they will be doomed. I don't think any true Christian will end up taking the mark. But the, at that point, it should be pretty obvious because it will be a form of worship. The second beast of Revelation 13, which is the lamb, he's a, he's a, he's a counterfeit Jesus, Mm-hmm. And, pro- and really mm-hmm. fits the Jesus of Islam. It's kind of interesting, but that's another issue. Uh, but he's a lamb who speaks like a dragon, so he's also a false Jesus. And he's going to, according to the Islamists, he's Jesus is going to come back as a prophet who is going to convert the world to Islam, which is r- kind of r- outrageously ridiculous. But nonetheless, that's what they—that's their Jesus. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, and this lamb, which the lamb is a symbol of Jesus, who speaks like a dragon causes the world to worship the first beast, which is the antichrist and to set up an image of him and to receive a mark in their hand or their forehead. He's the one who does it. It's a religious system. You see, so it's religion being used to get people to submit to the state and to the economic system. Satan is going to realize, and people, people don't realize this. Secularism is always temporary. It is a way to oust one religion and then ultimately to bring in another. Because you can't stop people being religious. They're going to worship something if it's Mm -hmm. only their Mm -hmm. own pathetic selves. They're going to worship something. And because man's incurably religious, because we were created to worship God. And when we can't, we're not worshiping God, we're always trying to find something, you know, to satisfy and to fill it.
0: So I think that was an important point you just made there, because what I I can envision at least is that at some point people may get a microchip put under their skin to hold all this data, or even baby be, be, be an implanted cell phone. Well, I mean, I see the Japanese are working on things like that as well right now. Mm-hmm. So wh- what I just heard you say is that's not intuitively ne- necessarily going to be the mark that's talked about in no. the Bible, because that's not a religious icon, that's not a religious symbol. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I think, confuse any piece of that technology as next step, just be in the mark. You just took a mark. And I think that you gave us a really good answer there that says, no, there's a distinction between that and what the mark will be. Yeah,
1: I think there is some validity to saying, be careful how far you go. For example, if you get everything invested in that system and you can't eat... You can't do anything unless you're submissive to that system. And then all of a sudden it becomes, okay, you're going to take this mark and you're going to worship the beast and you're going to submit and and swear allegiance to him. Uh, All of a sudden it's going to be really hard for some people to go, whoa, I can't do this because I lose everything instantly. You know, I have no access to my bank accounts. I have no access to my retirement. I have, I can't go to the market and buy something. I can't, you know, and I'm, maybe I'm living in the middle of a city. I don't, I can't grow food. I don't have anything. Suddenly it's going to be a huge cost to say no. And of course, yeah, there will be black markets and all that's going to erupt. And we know that there always will be that, but it's going to be hard to survive. Mm -hmm. And so when those times come, uh, this is why the Bible says in those very same chapters, Revelation 13 and 14, this calls for great patience and endurance on the part of the saints who remain faithful to Jesus. So it's obviously people who are already believers, who already are his followers, and it's going to call, and it talks about if you're to go to prison, to prison you'll go. If you're to be killed with the sword, with the sword you'll be killed. This calls for great faithfulness and patience on the part of the those who remain faithful to Jesus. So it's clearly the church that's referring to them.
0: So that leads us into a discussion maybe for next time or another time at least is that indicates that the church is still here. We have not seen a rapture yet.
1: Yeah, and that will take us into as we walk into this abomination desolation and what Jesus talks about happening in Jerusalem. And it's interesting, we have the type of it uh, that happened in AD 70 as Titus destroys Rome and the temple and Jesus refers to that in the Olivet discourse because the, but, the disciples ask him about that. Remember, that's the original question. When is this going to happen, this destruction of the temple? Jesus answered that. Luke records it. But he also talked about it happening in regard to end time because in the, uh, the Matthew account and in the Mark account, it is clearly in time, because he says this will happen during a time which is the worst time the world has ever seen and will be so bad it will never happen like this again. Well, that's clearly not AD 70. We've seen worse times since AD 70. So we'll talk about that next time, why we know that these are two different timelines, and the timeline actually changes in Luke at verse 12, so that we know that we're going back in time, and now we're going to make our way back up and then finally sink back in with the Matthew account and the Mark account but we're going to get this period of the apostles and the destruction of Jerusalem and all of that, and the people being taken as uh, captives to all nations and spread over the diaspora takes place and all of that. And then eventually it comes up to the time that the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then we're right back in sync with the rest of the Olivet Discourse.
0: All right. Sounds great. Well, I think that's what we have time for today. Yeah. Uh, I greatly appreciate you coming and talking to us. Uh, I think uh, our reader, our listeners get the get a lot of good information from this discussion.
1: There's a lot for us to discuss, J.D., as (laughs) you know. I think we got a lot more coming,
0: (laughs) and I look forward to it. So until next time, I thank you very much, sir. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you for walking with us through this portion of the Olivet Discourse. Stick with us as we journey through the calendar that Jesus revealed to his disciples about the end of the age and the signs that we should be looking for. Please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. And don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also, find us on Facebook at Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And if you want to hear more messages from Pastor Durham, you can find him at pcnh.church. And do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family. Again, thank you for listening and have a blessed day.